Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Dave Baxter and today I'm joined by Neil Herman. He works as a portfolio manager for Janus Henderson. Uh, he works on the Henderson Smaller Companies Investment Trust, the Janus Henderson UK Smaller Companies Fund and the Janus Henderson UK Alpha Fund. Uh, with a long record in both financial services and the smaller mid-cap space, Neil should be able to shed some light on navigating the domestic markets at a time which I think we can all agree is marked by heightened uncertainty. So, Neil, thanks for joining. How are you doing? Uh, good, thanks, Dave. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks for inviting me on. Pleasure. Um, so, you know, you obviously focus on domestic shares. You have a big focus on the kind of smaller mid-cap space. But of course, it's natural that all eyes are currently focused on the situation in Ukraine. Uh, While the most important element, of course, is humanitarian in nature, fund managers and investors will also be giving a great deal of thought for the consequences for economies and for the markets. Um, So just to kick off, you know, as I said, you're you're focusing on kind of small mid-cap UK stocks. What are the main considerations here for you as an investor? Um, what are the important impacts that you think listeners should be bearing in mind? Um, yeah, it's always something, isn't it? We had COVID um, and then we've now moved on to interest rates and inflation and clearly now on to Ukraine. Obviously, you said it's a, a horrible humanitarian disaster. So obviously things are put in context um, by this. Look, I mean, so um, from a kind of direct exposure from our perspective, um, you know, there isn't a huge amount of exposure in our portfolio to directly towards Russia and Ukraine. It's a pretty small market for Europe overall. However, it clearly may have an influence on consumer and corporate confidence. Um, you know, this sort of headline is clearly going to impact um, potentially how businesses operate and invest and, um, and certain consumers. Uh, and obviously, we know the consequent impacts on well, where Russia is clearly very strong is obviously the um, commodity side. So. Um, price of oil has clearly spiked um, and other commodities too. So that's going to lead to inflation and increased costs. Um, so a very difficult time overall, um, and there will be some short-term impacts. And the obvious things that we've seen sectors like, for example, oil stocks and defense stocks rally and other sectors um, could even fall away. In terms of you know how we're thinking about it, it doesn't really impact our long-term perspective in terms of how we see um, UK spend more, uh, so, you know, a small mid-cap uh, market. Um, fundamentally, this will wash through um, over time um, and the long-term prospects remain essentially the same. So we're not really adjusting our portfolio um, uh, to, to account for this. And it's clearly a short-term. And if anything, providing buying opportunities in certain situations where you don't feel this huge long-term impact. So clearly, yes, you know, a horrendous situation. Um, but in terms of the long-term impact on our portfolio, essentially zero. And you've alluded to this there, but um, I mean, what are you doing in terms of, I, I suppose, kind of not just this crisis, but also we, of course, started the year on a very rocky note with the, you've mentioned concerns about inflation, concerns about monetary tightening, kind of putting a bit of a shock through markets and also through some of the kind of stocks that you prefer to own. Where have you kind of found an opportune time to be kind of topping up and adding to exposures? What kind of sectors? Yeah, look, I think it's been a you know very challenging start to 22, um, not only because of geopolitical events, but also because the, the market is focused on um, the issue of um, rising inflation and what that means for 
um, interest rates and bond yields. Um, and we've seen a significant rotation away from growth stocks and devalue stocks. Um, and, you know, think about the way we do things uh, at Janice Anderson and in our team. We are very much uh, growth investors, but we kind of go up growth at the right price, growth at the reasonable price. But essentially, the portfolio looks like a growth portfolio. So we've had, a, you know, after what's been a number of very good years, um, 22 has started. Um, it's been a difficult start to the year in context of that performance, as you see that rotation away. Um, fundamentally, though, that doesn't really change the way we do things. We've, we've employed the same process, philosophy and strategy since I started at Janice Anderson over 19 years ago. Um, and that isn't going to change overnight because you know things have shifted a little bit. I mean, in fact, anything you look at it last year, there was significant rotation between growth and value about eight times in the course of 21. So these things can move in the move in their head in the six months in a, in, a, in a flash of the eye. So you know we are going to remain very true to our underlying philosophy around quality growth companies that will deliver long-term returns um, you know, through structural long-term growth trends. Um, so I think really what we found this year is a buying opportunity. Um, and if you look at you know, a number of our stocks that have done very well for us over the last few years, they've had a tricky start to 22, but now look, you know, very attractive value compared to long-term averages given that fall off. Um, and for us, because I think, you know, fundamentally we believe those companies will deliver great long-term returns, it's a good opportunity for us to top up in those situations. Mm. Whenever you have these kind of seismic events, people, uh, it makes sense to... I suppose, kind of really kick the tyres in your investment thesis and see if anything's changed. Um, one of your kind of bigger holdings in the investment trust is impacts asset management. And I, I suppose there's kind of an interesting discussion around the nature of ESG. You know, there's this argument that perhaps the current crisis has really highlighted the kind of energy dependency areas like Europe have in Russia and perhaps arguably it could trigger a um, a further boost for kind of renewables. And then, I don't know, maybe it kind of again kind of shifts how people see ESG, you know, are in situations like this, are defence companies kind of something you can uh, be a bit more favourable on? I mean, ha have you considered this kind of in the context of impacts and, you know, what are your views there? Let's take this in various stages. So <laughs> in terms of our, how we approach ESG as our perspective. You know, we're not, you know, we're not an ESG fund. Um, we don't have exclusion lists, but however, because we're a very significant investor in the UK, spending more time space, um, typically a top 10 investor, we, we're engaging with our businesses all the time. Uh, we, we did ESG before ESG was even, was even coined the phrase. Um, and we do think ESG is an important aspect to investment uh, perspective. We do think that companies need to, act in the right way from an environmental, social and governance perspective. Um, and we're all about the journey in that context of that improvement. Um, I think ESG is a structural shift in the way um, investors are approaching um, their, their, kind of their, their portfolios. I don't think that's going away. Um, and we are, we, we own all in defense companies. I mean, you know, that's, it's all about you know, whether they can actually, that they're on the journey in terms of improving it. So I think we, we think it's an important thing. We do engage with our corporates on a very regular basis. Um, so I do think ESG is a structural long-term trend. Um, I think we can see that from the, how, how clients have reacted over the last couple of years and how that's become an increasingly important perspective from their, from their, their own investment portfolios. Um, impacts um, as a stock, I mean, it's our top holding at the end of the year. Um, it's been a great performer for us in the last, we've owned it for about five years now. Um, it's done phenomenally well. Um, clearly as a specialist ESG investor, it's um, been very successful. It's um, grown its AUM very significantly. Um, 
it doubled AUM last year, for example, and with significant flows. Um, as a long-term investor in, in ESG stocks, it's got the expertise and skills and track record. That means it's been certainly going very well. Um, so we think the long-term outlook for impacts is um, undiminished and very strong indeed. Um, we'll continue to grow, grow um, over the medium term and has aspirations to double again from this as AUM over the next few years. It's had a tricky start to 22, as a lot of these are referred to already around the kind of the devaluation of, um, of growth into value stocks. Um, it's fallen by over 30% year to date, um, but nothing has really changed. Um, fund flows in January were very strong. I mean, there's been a mark to market impact because there are investor inequities and equities have fallen. So there might be some impact from that, but the underlying strength of the business is still there. And I think the, it is an inexorable trend in terms of how we all approach ESG and I think we'll continue to win AUM. So we are, we've not lost any faith in impacts as a position. Um, if anything, it's a, a great long-term buying opportunity. There is um, an interesting argument on the ESG front that some of the what you might call the stalwarts, so some of those names like impacts that have a you know a long heritage of um, being focused on ESG, perhaps you you wouldn't really accuse them of you know being part of the greenwashing trend. But there is an argument that they are at risk of, I suppose, like any market leaders, perhaps kind of being less nimble and not being as quick to adapt to changes in things like ESG investing than perhaps some of the kind of newer upstarts. I mean, how would you how would you take on that? Is that something that you're kind of conscious of? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's obviously we've got to, and got to look at the, the fundamentals of the business and whether it continues to grow as it has done previously. And as you said, it's going to be clearly because any, any market that's in growth will attract competition. So you look at its kind of its moat, its barrier century, its competitive advantages. And, you know, I think the you know, when, when, a, when a large US pension or teacher's pension fund is collecting someone, you know, they're going to look at, you know, the quality of the performance track record, the quality of the people, the kind of the quality of the process, um, and fundamentally impacts will score very highly. And I'm not going to win everything, but I still think they, they will win most of the time compared to some of the new peers who haven't got that track record. Um, so as long as they remain, you know, you know, stick to their knitting and do what they've done previously and keep, you know, retain the quality of the staff and recruit well um, and don't lose the, the, the kind of the discipline and focus they've got, then I think they, they should tend to be a successor, successor in, the, in that area. Yeah, makes sense. Um, to stick with some of your kind of bigger holdings, um, you do hold some other names that are likely popular with um, many of our listeners. So, for example, Future and, uh, you know, Watches of Switzerland, they... Perhaps they could be viewed as sort of darlings of uh, recent time periods, but uh, again, they've you know run into trickier times. Um, how are you? How are you kind of feeling on those two names? I look, a similar story to Impacts. I mean, both have been you know we've owned watches since um, it's IPO'd, um, so that's been not, not two or three years now it's IPO'd. Future we've owned for um, five or six years. I mean, and we are very long term in our approach. The average owning period of Stocks of portfolio um, is well over six years, and there's a lot of investments we've owned for much longer than that. So, you know, we we don't invest for a kind of short-term return. This is very much a long-term approach. Um, and to be honest, again, I mean, both share prices, you know, after what what very very strong 21s have performed quite poorly in 22 so far. Again, it's all back to that point about derating of growth companies and the rotation away from um, growth into value. But actually, operationally, both have performed exceptionally well. Watch the Switzerland had. 
you know, very strong growth last year. A number of upgrades went through the course of the year. The outlook remains very strong. Um, demand for relics watches has not diminished at all. The, the waiting list is still as long as um, as long as anyone's arm. And the expansion plans in the US and Europe are, you know, um, extremely kind of um, credible. So the long-term growth rates should remain very good. Future, again, I mean, they delivered upgrade after upgrade during uh, 21. It's an incredibly um, impressive management team run by Zillabin Thorne. Um, you know, the, the, the positioning regarding um, digital advertising, digital commerce, again, remains extremely strong. They've got a very successful track record of doing um, M&A and strategic M&A, which is enhanced returns for shareholders. Um, and, you know, I, I think you know, it's a feature you know, in this market is that you've seen um, a bit of profit taking this year. There's been a lot, of, a lot of gains people are sitting on on this one. Um, it's as like impacts and watches derated significantly. So typically futures traded on well north of 20 times perspective earnings. It's now, you know, you look at the numbers down to around 15 times. I mean, that is looks a, a, a kind of a bargaining context of um, historical um, historical rating numbers. So I, I, I'm, we're as committed to those holdings as we ever have been. Um, so yeah, look, I think that is the opportunity. Um, you know, for us, it's about picking the right stocks. And as long as operationally they continue to perform well and deliver the growth we think they should deliver then fundamentally the share price will take care of itself over time so as you as you've said you're kind of a growth investor i suppose interested in kind of structural growth stories and i imagine perhaps like many fund managers you may say you know i'm, I'm bottom up macro you know that's not really my my business i don't worry about macro it's not what i'm paid to do but what strikes me about this year and perhaps the back end of last year is it it does really feel much more influenced by macro events so far at least um does that have any kind of knock-on effect i mean you you mentioned kind of uh, the growth at the right price approach i mean does the right price change do you want more of kind of a discount in you know in uh, com to compensate for the the greater uncertainty and it yeah is there anything you kind of have to be more aware of than you would be in perhaps slightly more peaceful times um, I would argue it's been macro for more than just in the last year. This year has been actually, I mean, I would argue throughout course 21, I think macro was a driving factor um, of, of markets over that period of time. Uh, and definitely this year, it's been very much macro rather than micro. Um, I think macro in the short term, micro in the long term. You know, I, again, I come back to that point, you know, fundamentally, if you are buying the right companies and your thesis, investment thesis plays out, as you expect it to do, and they deliver the growth and the macro will sort itself out. Um, and we have to kind of try and avoid that noise because if we try, if we basically try to flex a portfolio for macro noise, we'd be changing the portfolio six times a year, um, which we don't do. You know, we are, you know, we haven't got that flexibility and, and luxury and small cap because liquidity is always a feature. We're running a reasonable amount of money in the space. We have to take a long-term approach. Um, and you always want to pay the right price for the companies you're buying and you want to ensure that the growth is more than justifies the value you're paying for it. Um, but that's just part of the job we do. But I think you know we're not we're not going to shift the process or the portfolio materially if growth suddenly out of favour of a couple of months because it can go back into favour in a couple of months' time. Um, I just do do think the micro potentially wins out over the longer term. Mm. And as you mentioned, we've we've already seen many of those shifts last year. It's uh, quite a topsy turvy twenty twenty one. But you mentioned kind of sticking to the process, and um, I suppose like some other kind of smaller companies' funds, you've been quite keen on running your winners um what now say in the trust 
what is the kind of balance of mid caps to small caps? So yeah, that <clears throat> is that point about you know running a winner. So we don't. So you think about the new investments. We don't buy anything in the um, new investments unless they're within our size band. So we use the um, the Numis index as our benchmark. So anything below about one and a half billion market cap is already in our investment sphere. So any new investments in there, but if they do well and, and they seem to grow beyond it and successful, we will continue to own them. At the point where we are forced to sell it against the FTSE 100. Um, so exactly two examples recently, uh, Decker Pharmaceuticals and I think Howden uh, both you know, joined the FTSE and we were for, we, we had to sell them over the next six months, but that's a good discipline to have. Um, that That's one of the reasons why we have quite a mid-cap bias to our portfolio, that run the winners approach. So if you look at the shape of the portfolio, it's around um, 60% mid-cap, around 15% small cap and 25% aim. Um, and you know that why do we have that mix well i think that's one the winners approach so if you're buying things when they're small and they're doing well and growing and being successful naturally you should hope to move into 250 over time and, and get bigger and if you're owning good companies that do well they should should make that grade um but also it's around liquidity um you know you know fundamentally again the portfolio is so you know reason large money we're running in the space and therefore we're naturally going to gravitate towards the, the largest small caps and mid caps because they have the liquidity for us to invest in them. I mean, this is not a micro cap product. We really haven't got the 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 the, 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 um, the ability or liquidity to invest in you know, companies below 150 million market cap. It's just what we can't look at. So we gravitate towards larger small cap and mid cap. But fundamentally, we're pretty index um, we're index aware, but we we don't really care where it comes from. If it's a good idea, it's a good idea. Mid cap, small cap, or aim, and the portfolio drives itself in that context. Yeah, I mean, does that tell us something about the kind of investment universe? I mean, when, you, uh, when you're looking for your potential winners, are you simply finding that some of these established names that have now drifted into mid-cap territory are kind of harder to assail if you're kind of on those plucky upstarts? Or, you know, what's the, what's kind of, what are those two opportunity sets like? Um, yeah, I mean, so we're not particularly... Um, you know, focus on where it comes from. And obviously, as long as it's got enough liquidity for us to invest in, we're pretty, you know, at, at, you know, sort of, you know, keen to look across the whole market, whether it's aim, small cap or mid cap. Um, and, you know, best returns we get from are investing in, you know, smaller companies that can grow into larger companies over a period of time. And some of those companies you mentioned already, I mean, you think where Future started and, you know, where Impact started. I mean, you know, they started at, Know, know a fraction of where they are today in context of market cap size. They're, they're, they're the best returns we can drive is finding those undiscovered gems that will, you know, essentially multiply many times over the course of a kind of a of a decade or, or shorter. Um, so yeah, we our opportunity set doesn't really change over time. We are very much you know open to anything within the context of our investment investment um, sphere. Mm. And and say you are kind of fishing on those um I suppose further down the market cap scale or as far relatively as far down as you can go. Um, what, at the minute, what kind of themes are you finding most appealing? You know, what are you, what's really standing out to you as a kind of potential kind of driver of returns? Um, so today, I mean, I think that, well, we'll make the point that, you know, we, we don't really like blue sky or loss making businesses. Um, mm. Fundamentally, we like profitable cash relative cash flows particularly um, and probably dividend paying businesses. So we're not really going to be invested in sort of blue sky loss making things. 
um, more established companies we're looking to, to buy into. I often find, tend to find the market overvalues those blue sky or doesn't you know, account for all the, the, the various risks they, um, they may have. Um, if I think about where the opportunity sets is today, to be honest, I, we're not really adding new names at this point. I think we've added one new name this year so far. Um, there is enough value in our current portfolio and things that we know and like and understand and have met uh, multiple times. So we really, at the moment, the opportunity is for us to top up in one of those situations that we already have, um, where we think there's been the share prices at falls have been overdone. And you you mentioned that um, in terms of selling or kind of no longer running your winners, that would happen when something enters the FTSE 100. But of course, there will be instances where you have to sell for perhaps less uh, less fruitful reasons. Yeah. Um, what what has generally triggered you to kind of call time in a stock and think this you know this isn't appealing anymore? No, I think there's, um, I mean, I, I think, you know, fund managers are kind of um, it's sort of 80, 20, 70, 30 game, isn't it really? You know, for, you know let's, let's be honest here, we don't get everything right. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, I'd love to believe that we are, you know, infallible, we're not, uh, and we do make mistakes. We try to minimize those and get more right than wrong. Um, you know, what makes us sell? Um, well, obviously a number of reasons we talked about, obviously when it gets to FTSE 100, that's, that happens on a rare occasion. We obviously get bids, quite a few bids, M&A activity in the portfolio is quite active, so those, those can actually fall out. But also things where our investment thesis change or where, we, where things don't work out as we expect it to do. Um, what are the trigger points for that? Um, it, it's really around the kind of the um, reverse of our buy decisions. So we talk about the four M's in terms of our, you know, the things we look for in the company to invest in, and those are model, this model economic franchise, competitive advantage, you know, quarters five forces, what announced the business, management, incredibly important in small cap, often driven led by one or two key individuals, assess the strategy, motivation, vision, corporate governance, alignment with shareholders. We meet companies on a very regular basis, getting their management teams pretty well over a long period of time. Um, money, so balance sheet and cash flow. So um, the team is all accountants by training. Um, Apologise for that, but you know it's um, <laughs> so we hopefully can analyse the P and L on a balance sheet and cash flow, and then momentum's around earnings momentum. So finding companies that will over deliver against market expectations, provide the upgrades that we'd expect from our portfolio companies. The trigger, sorry, for selling is the reverse of those. So things that change in our forums. So a new competitor, um, a lack of pricing power, um, a change of management team, um, you know, deteriorating financials in context of balance sheet and cash flow. Um, poor earnings momentum or a profit warning are all kind of you know red flags to us, which may or may not prompt to sell the business. And also valuation. So you know we we GARP, we growth at the right price. So valuation is important to us. And if thing if thing becomes too expensive, then we should be selling it. Um, we're not kind of you know we don't hold at all costs. Um, mm. a GARP portfolio should have the right valuation attached to it. And if anything, the kind of the 2000 tech crisis or tech, tech bubble taught us is that you know you've got to pay the right price for companies you buy and growth at any price is not, not acceptable. This is probably a slippery slope, but, um, you know, in recent years, now and then, you've, you've heard some fund managers talking about uh, perhaps how they've they've had to become a bit more, a little bit more relaxed about kind of valuations, I suppose, both in terms of where you buy and perhaps, you know, where you have to sell when it comes to these kind of quality and growth stocks. Is it sounds like the answer is probably no, but I mean, is is that something that's kind of applied to your your process at all? I mean, valuation is a kind of a, both an absolute and a relative measure, isn't it? Um, so you have to look at it in context of the overall market and where it stands in, in that basis, but also absolute and compared to history. So yeah, it is it's again an art rather than science evaluation. Um, and you know, um, no, we don't 
we don't really like selling great companies. Um, you know, we do tend to sell, you know, we tend to trim more than completely sell out of things where they, we think they've reached their value. Um, but, you know, the GARP nature of the portfolio means we do think value is important and then we have to pay the right price for it. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say we've become, you know, sort of just ignored valuation. Um, and we do have to uh, kind of say a nod towards that. Um, but it does depend on market levels and um, relative and absolute levels. Mm. And you, you mentioned before the um, M&A activity, that and I suppose the IPOs last year, the, we really saw extremely high levels of activity. Um, I, personally, I'd imagine, I mean, have you seen that kind of dropping off quite sharply so far this year? Does that have a big kind of impact on your portfolios? Yeah, so two, two sides of the question there. I think, so let's start with IPOs. IPOs was a really busy 2021, um, and that's after a pretty fallow 2020 obvious reasons because the market was in a state of flux with covid and didn't know whether you know where we we're going to be um next week rather than next year so it was clearly obviously a year when things you know a lot of things didn't happen therefore a big backlog of 21 and we were pretty active in ipos in 21 um you know the great thing about working at janice anderson is we are a, we're a big investor in in the space across the things we're a desired shareholder so we get great access we typically meet these ipos you know seven eight months before they even come to market with early looks deep dive meetings with management teams well below the top executive level will get great access up to IPO. So we know them pretty well. Um, and to be honest, we kiss a lot of frogs. Um, you know, the there's a you know last year we did a lot of meetings, a lot of pre-IPO meetings, early looks, fair amount of rubbish we saw as well that never saw the light of day or we didn't invest in. I think we did seven IPOs in total. And for us actually they are great long-term opportunities for us to invest in quality businesses. And you already talked about for example watches for example was an IPO three years ago and been a phenomenal performer for us. So you can Pick those stocks. That's really um, very good. So we're we're pretty up, we're pretty active in IPO space, and you know, it's a good opportunity, a rich source of new opportunity. Twenty two looks really quiet. I mean, it's obviously you know the events so far from a macro perspective with uh, um, with um, you know, quantitative tightening and interest rates, but now geopolitical events means that you know the IPO market seems to be dead, and I think will remain incredibly quiet throughout Q two and Q three is typically quiet because it's summer months and no one's really here. So I don't think the IPO market really if anything comes back to Q4. Um, so that's gonna be, that's that's fine. I mean, there'll be a lot in 23 probably. So, I mean, it's it's kind of, it's, it's, it's not as if we aren't short of opportunity in the market overall. Um, M&A, other side of the coin, um, in, again, fallow in 2020, um, we had eight companies in our portfolio acquired in 22, 21, sorry, getting it right. Um, and you look at where, who's, who's buying UK corporates and it's essentially overseas and private equity. Um, the UK market, and I'm sure it's banged into a number of times, the UK market's cheap, particularly compared to international markets. Um, it's really underperformed ever since 2016 and, um, you know, looks very cheap. And I think overseas corporates and private equity sense that opportunity in terms of value. So we're seeing a lot of inward M&A into the UK equity market. And of the eight companies in our portfolio that were acquired in 21, six were from private equity and two foreign, two foreign corporates. So uh, to be honest, I think Going to 22, that continues. I think the equity market falls we've seen so far this year, particularly in small and mid-cap, which has underperformed the FTSE, means a lot of value out there for these buyers. Um, and there's a real you know, discrepancy between public market transactions and private market transactions in terms of well, private public market valuations and private transactions. So you look at, for example, this year, we didn't own it, but John Mingus has bought an 80% premium. Um, We've had a big yesterday for one of our top 10 Oxford Instruments from Spectrus at a 50% um, you know, premium. Um, 
we've seen relax the private market, so informal selling its um, B2B division for over 30 times EBITDA, um, which is a massive multiple to previous to comparable companies in the market. Uh, and also we saw the company we looked on an early look company last year, um, an IPO, which we were really interested in, um, was bought by another private company at 25 times EBITDA, again, probably much higher than we'd have paid for it. So I think there's a real gap between public and private, and I think that will lead to more m &A. So I think it could be quite, although geopolitics are clearly uh, quite uh, you know, front and center currently, I do think M&A continues to be a, a big theme for small mid-cap in 22. Mm. That, that must be quite a bittersweet experience, I suppose, kind of seeing those bids come in. Because on the one hand, you know, nice uplift for your, for your portfolio. On the other hand, as we've discussed, you like to run winners and you simply can't do that anymore. Um, yeah. How do you feel? Yeah, no, that? no. So it, 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 is, it is a bittersweet experience because exactly, you can have, um, I mean, let's, let's take Austin's awesome example. We've owned that for, um, you know, a long period of time. It must be all over 10 years. Um, and, you know, we think the prospects of this is extremely good longer term. It's in all the right areas. I mean, sort of semiconductors, advanced materials, quantum computing. It's growing its top line by double digit. It, it's, it's margin improvement. The margin improvements coming through net cash balance sheet, strong management team, tick, 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 tick. I mean, so yeah, we like it. It's top you know, number four holding. Um, however, you know, if someone's willing to pay tomorrow's price or, you know, three years times price today, then, you know, fundamentally we can, we can cash on and move on and move on because I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of opportunity in the SMED space to buy other quality companies. So yeah, it's a bittersweet moment, but you can't fall in love with companies you own you, you are ultimately running a portfolio of investments to maximize share of returns uh, and therefore if an opportunity comes along to, to maximize that value and move on then so be it you need to be emotionally unattached i suppose yeah that's a, a good way of looking at it and finally i just wanted to touch on um you know i mean you're focusing on individual companies but your sector allocations are, are quite interesting I mean, you know, like you say, you have a growth focus and the portfolio is going to get buffeted about in sort of um, current conditions. But perhaps there's a glimmer of hope in, at least from a kind of a brief glance at your allocations. You know, you have some some financials in there. You have some industrials. Um, perhaps also, you know, your consumer discretionary weighting could help with uh, things like pricing power and in inflationary times. Um, how are you feeling on kind of different sectors right now? I mean, are there particular industries that you're you're thinking, oh, there are some interesting, um, you know, macro, non-macro caveats aside, you know, are there interesting tailwinds that are kind of making you look more closely in certain areas? Um, I think we <clears throat> I make the point that we, we, we don't, we're not sector focused. We are very much bottom-up stock driven. Um, so the kind of sector business come out of stocks, um, but fundamentally, given the GARP style, we're going to be naturally more gravitate towards those areas that are intrinsically growth areas um, and underweight, those are more value-based areas. So you're going to find our portfolio being heavy in electronics, uh, pharmaceuticals, software, industrials. We're going to be underweight real estate, food producers, um, you know, you know, mining oil and gas, because that's a natural consequence of where we look for in the portfolio. Um, so, and you know, fundamentally given the, the nature of the process, yeah, it's gonna be the, that's gonna remain the way going forward. So uh, I think the focus on the individual stocks is much more important to us than the sector stock, sector position, but we are naturally gonna have a, a bias within the context of our portfolio overall. 
But how are you feeling about your the industrials names that you hold? Because you have a fair you have fair allocation there, and I suppose perhaps surprisingly, in the industrial sector as a whole seems to have struggled as well this year. Um, perhaps you could assume that it would actually do better than it has done. Look, I think that yeah, so, I mean, I think we have exactly we've historically had a, a weighting towards industrials, and for example, where Oxford's are, you know one of the key holdings we've had in, in the space. Um, yeah, there's not a problem with the top line on the industrial um, sector currently. Demand globally is is very strong as we come out of COVID. Uh, markets recover very strong. There's a requirement for ca- capex ca- um, catch up, um, and you know even the move towards green technologies is driving a lot of capex around that. So there's a, the, the, there's globally um, industrial production is strong and likely to remain so. And I think a look at the companies that I own and their order books look very very strong into 22. Um, the problem's been around supply chain and uh, delivering delivering that. So you've had the issues around particularly um, component shortages. Semiconductors have been an issue for a lot of industries, particularly automotive, for example, been very high profile, but generally electronics and semis are been hard to get hold of. Um, but also it's been into other raw materials. Um, and just, you know, there's been supply chain challenges. Logistics have been an issue. I mean, the price of container shipping from China's escalated massively over the course of the, the last year. And naturally it's been, again, costs have gone up across the board. Um, and also people as well. I mean, obviously wage inflation is coming back a bit um, and there's been the great resignation and employee turnover has picked up. So it, it, it's really been deliverance. The top line has been absolutely fine or the growth the order book has been absolutely fine, but it's the, the cost of delivering that. So there've been a bit of issues around that. That resolves itself. Um, fundamentally, these things will kind of will fade over time. Um, and the quality and strength of demand overall and the, the length of order book these companies have will translate into increased profitability in 22 and 23. So we're pretty optimistic about that space overall into, mm. into the coming year. And again, the macro sort of leaking into our conversation, but have you uh, have you found yourself kind of sitting strongly in either the transitory or non-transitory camp? I mean, do you, do you feel quite <laughs> relaxed about <laughs> these, uh, these oh, inflationary pressures? It's above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> so look, I, I'm not going to try and sit here and tell you I know all of what's going to happen on that perspective and you know I think the we hear different arguments about transitory and non-transitory inflation um the base effect clearly kicks through so clearly we're going to start to peak inflation and in, um particularly in UK in April with um the energy prices um more cap coming off on uh, interesting gas prices um and which should fade over time and I, I, you know, I think you know, for example you know we are seeing supply chain on the whole not getting worse you know, the margin getting a bit better um I think from our perspective is that it's what we're trying to focus on is ensuring the companies we own have pricing power. Mm. So um, you know, if inflation is going to be more stubborn than uh, some observers expect, then can companies recover that through prices? Do they have the right products? You know, can the consumers will accept, you know, or can the consumer of their product accept price rises? Do they have IP, um, some degree of differentiation that means they can pass those through? So, what you don't want in an inflation environment is companies no pricing power. So again, quality, you know, companies with you know, high degrees levels of IP and, and differentiation are things to own. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps a red flag to look for then the, the pricing power weakness. Okay, I think that's a really interesting point on which to, uh, to wrap up then. Uh, I'm afraid that's all we have time for, but uh, many thanks to Neil for joining me and many thanks to everyone for listening. Take care. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.